0: Amen. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. I really did not know where that story was going, so yes, I had never heard that before. Uh, (laughs) And we are going to talk about God. The topic of grace, obviously crucial to all of us, that we're going to be focusing on tonight, tomorrow morning, and tomorrow evening, has baffled Really, really smart people for 2,000 years. There are doctoral dissertations out there. There are dueling doctoral dissertations out there. People who are really, really smart, arguing with each other and not coming to a conclusion. And we're going to solve it all, of course, in these next uh, six sessions. But the thing I want you to understand is this. The issues of grace bring us up against some true paradoxes and also some hard limits of what human beings are capable of when we think about God. I understand that it is our curiosity we want to be able to pick apart everything and completely define all things but you know a God you could completely pick apart wouldn't really be God. And we're going to find ourselves running up against a limit or two in the human ability to understand God and what he does and how he acts. The good news is that mysterious, strange, bizarre creator of the universe is fanatically in love with us. Enough that he's willing to sacrifice himself in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. That's the central story of this Christian faith that we have attached ourselves to. Now, I said there's a paradox, and it's up on your screen. or Yeah, there it is. It's right there on the screen. And it's encapsulated in this verse that's in Ephesians, a very famous verse about this topic. If you have Bibles, you can turn and look at the whole verse. I only put a few of the words up there on the screen. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. And you see the paradox in that. How are you saved? You saved by works or not? You're saved by grace, not by works, so you don't be boastful, you don't boast. It's one of the key signs, boastfulness. You're saved by grace through faith, so you can do a bunch of work. Right. I mean, if you listen to certainly some popular theology that's out there, you would almost think, well, if we're saved by grace, then works has nothing to do with it. If we have to do some work, then grace has nothing to do with it. And whatever's going on with the people who say those different sides of the, uh, of the coin, that's not clearly what Paul was thinking about what he seems to express is this strange idea that the more grace you've got going on the more stuff you do for God it doesn't make you less it makes you more okay so for our first session you're going to love this turn well no first I want to I want to show you this picture you guys see this picture can anybody guess what this is a picture of? It's pretty uh, stylized, so I'd be surprised if you knew what this is in reference to. Well, how'd you know that? That's impressive, yes. What, what particular moment in the Garden of Eden is this? God is coming walking, and Adam and Eve are running out to welcome him? No, what? They're hiding from God, right? This is that moment, it's recorded In Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve have both eaten the forbidden fruit, they've both realized that they're naked, they're ashamed now to face God. And so they are hiding themselves. Genesis 3, verse 8. And they hid themselves from the Lord. How awful is that? And they hid themselves from the Lord. There's a lot of themes that you can trace through Scripture, but I want to trace that theme. How close can I get to God? Or how far away does my resistance to God push me? What happens to Adam and Eve next? After they've sinned and they can't face God and they hide, God calls them out and exposes everything, but then what happens? What happens to them in the Garden of Eden? They have to exit. They have to be exiled. They have to be pushed away. The next story that we have in Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Abel literally means something akin to short, short breath. You know, short, doesn't live long. And, and God calls Cain to account for the murder of his brother in Genesis chapter 4 and banishes him And embedded in that story, Cain complains about this. He says, all those people out there are going to kill me. Don't ask me where the people came from. I don't know. Uh, They're there. They're part of the story. You go figure it out. But uh, I'm, I'm scared of them. But the part of the complaint you notice here, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. I will be hidden from your presence. You see that? Part of what makes human life what it is meant to be, something even Cain understood, something Adam and Eve understood, is being able to be near God. And it is a terrible thing when human beings are separated, pulled away from God. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, and he walked with God. The next story you're very familiar with, Genesis 11, verse 4. Let us build a tower that reaches into heaven. By the way, this is my favorite picture of the Tower of Babel. It's done by a Renaissance painter, but I I just love it. It's, It's just great. Sometime you can have me back, and I'll tell you all about this painting. It's wonderful. Uh... It's not accurate at all, but I don't care. Um, what were the people in Babel trying to accomplish? You remember? You got to talk louder. I'm deaf. That we're going to get up. We're going to get up into heaven, right? We're going to get there. We're going to hold. Our, we're going to make ourselves a huge nation. We're going to all be gathered in one place, and, and we're going to get up. And, and reach the presence of God, maybe, right? Humans know, even when humans are rebellious, this is, these are people in the line of the rebellious side of humanity, Cain and that group. Even when human beings rebel, they know they need to be in the presence of God. Genesis one through 11, as many of you know, is just like the history of the whole world up before God launches his plan of making covenant and so starting in genesis chapter 12 we have the launch of the long-scale plan of god to create his new people and it starts in genesis chapter 12 where this this guy with no children abram is called to follow god and god makes promises to him some of the promises almost obviously deliberately parallel some of what the, Babylonian, the, the Tower of Babel builders were trying to accomplish. I'm going to make you great, and everybody's going to know about you, and, and you're going to bless the whole world and all of these other things. In chapter 17, God says this, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Abram, part of what's going to make you special is your ability to walk before me. Oh, I skipped one. I didn't put it in your PowerPoint. But who's the most righteous person in the Bible between Adam and Noah? The preacher knew. Okay, yeah. Others knew too. All right. You don't count. You can't answer. Stop it. Um... So, yeah, Enoch, he walked with God. You getting the picture? It's the presence of God that is the prize in these stories. It is being able to have fellowship with God that is the great thing that we are seeking. And it's a horrible thing when we lose it. Um, Sure enough, God does exactly what he promises to Abraham. Out of Abraham comes many nations and Abraham's own uh, child of promise, Isaac, leads to Jacob, Israel, 12 tribes. They multiply fantastically in slavery, but still they they become this huge nation. And that leads us to our next episode, Genesis chapter 8. I mean, sorry, Exodus chapter 8. This is what the Lord says as... Moses confronts Pharaoh holding these people as slaves, as bound laborers. This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, that they may worship me. Do you see that? We, we often quote, let my people go, and that makes pretty good hymns, but let my people go, that they may worship me. He told uh, Moses earlier, This will be the sign that all this is true. You'll you'll be back here in my presence. You'll come back to this mountain to worship me. This same mountain where you're now seeing the vision of the burning bush. You'll come back here. Let my people go so that they may worship me. That they may come near me. How How does that exodus from Egypt end up? What does happen? Sure enough, by the time we get to chapter 19... The people have returned, and the presence of God comes down to the top of the mountain. And it's amazing. And the people are astonished. And they're also scared to death of God. Do you remember that part of the story? And they say, Don't let him talk anymore. We're going to do what he says, but please, Moses, you go talk to him for us. I love that part of the story. God's presence is dear, it is precious. Being near God is a privilege. And yet it's also terrifying to us. Moses goes up, does what they ask. He goes up, he communes with God on the top of the mountain. And down below the Israelites say, we need gods with us. We don't know what happened to Moses. We don't know what's going up there in this smoke and fire that's up at the top of the mountain. Uh, We need gods here with us. We need the presence of some kind of God. Make us a God, Aaron. And Aaron makes him a golden calf. We need, we need gods to go with us. And that's a terrible episode. At one point, God says, let me just, Moses, I'll, I'll start over with you. I'll just wipe all them out. I'll start over with you. And Moses, it's, I don't know why the Bible says some of the things that it says, to be honest. It, Moses talks God off a ledge at that point. He says, no, don't kill them. Don't kill them all. Have mercy. And, and it'll be Okay. And then in Exodus 33, God says to the Israelites, I'm going to send you, I'm going to keep the promise I made. You're going to go to the promised land. I'm going to send my angel with you, but I'm not going. I plan to go, but I'm not going now. Why? If I'm with you, even for an instant, what's likely to happen? I will destroy you. The presence of God is precious. It's also incredibly dangerous. What happens after, if you guys know the book of Exodus, if you studied it recently, what happens after Exodus 33? Remember what goes on now, what we get? We actually have two tellings of this before this episode and after this episode. We get the building of the tabernacle. Described in enormous, precise detail. The building of the tabernacle. It's got courtyards and it's got blood sacrifices and it's got an outer room and it's got an inner room and it's got an Ark of the Covenant. It's like God has to be insulated, but God is being built a place where he can be with the people. Moses says God... If you're not going to go with us, don't send us away from here. We would rather live and die here at Mount Sinai than to be sent away from your presence. We want to be near you. And the book of Exodus ends, Exodus 40, Moses and Aaron and all the people, they've built this beautiful tabernacle. They've, they've uh, sanctified it in all the ways that God has asked them to. They've set everything up. And then... The presence of God, represented by the glory cloud of God, fills the tabernacle. And now, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, will be the guide for the Israelites as they wander in the wilderness. God's presence. God's pres- nearness to the people. How many of you, raise your hands, be proud of this, how many of you would rank the book of Leviticus as your very favorite book? <laughs> Seriously? Are you? Okay. Kudos. It's not my favorite book. I, most of it I don't understand. But, but the guy who m- made the most sense of it for me uh, teaches at Abilene, um, Glenn Pemberton. He's got, a, he's got a great study series on Leviticus. And he says a lot of what's going on in Leviticus is sort of the rules if you're going to get to live next to God. That made so much sense to me. I'm a holy God. You got to be a holy people. Be holy because I'm holy. I, that made more sense of the book than, than any other commentator ever has for me. The Israel, what an incredible privilege it is to have God as your next door neighbor. And that's what the tabernacle represents. And eventually, that's what, of course, the temple comes to represent. 1 Kings 8, verse 11. I put a verse on on the screen for you. 1 Kings uh, tells the story of the building of the temple. 1 Kings 8 tells the story of the sanctification of the temple and Solomon's prayer about what the temple means and uh in verse 11 we have this famous famous moment where once again the glory of the lord comes and inhabits this house that's been built for him in in zion this is a huge deal to israel that you know you guys all have statues in your in your temples you you make wood statues and gold statues and silver statues and that's nice they're shiny We've got the actual creator of heaven and earth lives next door to us in our temple. Zion has been chosen by God, Psalms 132, 19. And there's so many Psalms that talk about this idea that Jerusalem is special, Zion is special because God has chosen it as his dwelling place. This is God's address on earth. That he's chosen to be near us. How precious that is. There's so many songs. Does anybody know the last, you can look this up actually. I'm going to talk long enough for you to do it. The last words of the 23rd Psalm. If you you were to just search in your memory or on Google. The last words of the 23rd Psalm. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. The prize of a life with God is to finally get to be in God's presence. Right? That's the prize. Psalms 51, the pen, a penitential psalm. Cast me not away from your, uh, from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And there's many like that as well. God, please let me come back in, to be near you again. Please let me come back to be near you. I want to show you this next picture. And that's grainy as all get out, but can you tell what that is? This is actually a woodcut illustration from a King James Bible from the 1700s, but I liked it. Can you tell at all what that might be? It's, some yeah, yeah, it's, it's Ezekiel's vision, right? You see the wheels and they've got eyeballs and then you also see living creatures, you know, an eagle and an ox and a lion and a, and a human, uh, son of man kind of thing. And above it all, there's this, there's this platform like the sky and above that, there's this figure shining. This is God's mobile chariot. And Ezekiel sees this vision in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, and that's very famous, and people have said, maybe it was flying saucers, and maybe, you know, fine, fine, flying saucers. It was just a vision of God. It was God. Uh, And and Ezekiel sees it when he's in exile to prove God can be where you are even when you're in exile. God can be wherever he wants to be. A lesser-known part of this vision happens in Ezekiel 9 through 11. This same chariot shows up in Ezekiel 9 through 11 in Jerusalem. And that glory of the Lord, which Israel prized so much, that had entered into the temple and had taken up residence in the temple uh, when Solomon consecrated the temple all those hundreds of years earlier, the glory of the Lord exits the temple And over the course of chapters 9 through 11, the the glory of the Lord goes to the eastern gate of the temple and pronounces judgment or has judgment pronounced on the city. And then the glory of the Lord with the chariot goes across the mountain to the east. And then the glory of the Lord departs from Israel. What's the name of the mountain to the east of Jerusalem? At least by the time we get to the New Testament, what's it called? The Mount of Olives, right? Yeah, it's important. Uh, Remember that name. Uh, The glory of the Lord exits Jerusalem. Why is the glory of the Lord exiting Jerusalem? Our temple will never fall. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's God's temple. What does it mean when Ezekiel sees God exiting? The temple's just a building now. There's no presence of God there. There's no nearness to God to be had. It's just a building. You guys have been treating it like just a building for centuries, so it's now it, God himself is treating it like just a building. And it can be destroyed in the next invasion. And that is indeed what happens. Eventually the Babylonians raise it. They, they tear it to the ground. Now, there is a promise at the end that that famous Ezekiel chariot shows back up in Ezekiel chapter 43. There's a promise that one day God will return the same way he went. He'll come back over that mountain to the east. What's the name of the mountain? I want all of you to say that with me. What mountain does God return to his temple over? The Mount of Olives. Okay, it's important. Okay. Uh, God is going to return to his temple, coming over the mountain to the east and take up residence once more and be near us once more. And yet you can turn all the pages after Ezekiel and look for that, and guess what? The temple in Jerusalem are rebuilt. The worship is restarted. But the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, ends without the return of God to his temple. There's never that same moment, you know, where the glory of God fills the temple and people are driven out because the glory is there shining in it. There's never that re-inauguration. God never comes back. What a terrible way for the Old Testament to end. Just kind of peter out. People are trying to be faithful, but they've lost and haven't, they don't feel like they've really gotten back that nearness to God that was the core part of what it meant to be an Israelite in the Hebrew Bible. That's why I don't think it's a coincidence that Matthew in his gospel reminds us of this prophecy The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I'm going to tell you a little Bible geekness here. Uh, Matthew is not one of the Gospels that goes to great lengths to explain Jewish terms to the audience. Mark is a gospel that spends more time explaining Jewish customs and Jewish terms and stuff like that to the audience. Matthew kind of assumes the audience is a Jewish well-read Jewish audience that knows about the Jewish culture. So it's not that common for Matthew to explain something Jewish. So why does he spell out what Emmanuel means? God with And why does he end his gospel the way that he ends it? Matthew 28, verse 20. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the things that I think we sometimes perhaps gloss over in Christianity is the central pride of God being with us and what it means that Jesus represents God's effort to draw near to us once more God making it possible once again to have his temple on earth to have his dwelling with us God with us by the way Think back to the triumphal entry of Jesus recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. How does Jesus come into the city of Jerusalem and into the temple? Which direction? If you've been following along, I bet you know. From the east, over which mountain? The Mount of Olives. We don't know if this is really true, but There are some scholars who have really argued that that is what that meant. That that is what that meant. That this is the moment when Ezekiel's prophecy begins to be fulfilled and God returns to take up his dwelling once more. Now the temple is not gonna be the temple the Jews hoped for, it's not that building that, you know, of Herod's, but God has returned to set up his temple and to take his dwelling in it luke kind of says that when luke tells the triumphal entry he adds a detail the other gospels don't at that very moment jesus kind of he just gets over the crest of the hill he sees jerusalem and the temple spread out in front of him and he stops and he and he says i would have saved you jerusalem how many times I wanted to. But you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's the way the NIV translates it. The time of your visitation is the way some other translations put it. The time of God's coming to you. Me, Jesus says. Coming to you is God trying to reclaim all his people. And unfortunately, what God is getting from the very people he's had the longest relationship with, is resistance and static. We want God, we want God, but stay away, God. Keep your distance, God. I want God here, I want God away. That is the central paradox of sin, that I want what God is, and I'm not aware that that's what I want, and so I push God away. What if somebody said to you, you know, I love family, I think of myself as a family man, I just don't like the obligation of a wife and kids. What's wrong with that thinking? Well, what you want is something you can't have under the terms that you just laid out. I think of myself, I believe I can be an Olympic athlete. I don't like getting up early to exercise. Well, what you want is something you can't have under the terms you just set up. And every human being wants what God is. Every human being wants goodness. Every human being wants love. Every human being wants justice to triumph. Every human being wants beauty. Every human being wants plenty. Every human being wants health. That's that's what God is. God is all those things to the ultimate degree. I want all those things. But I don't want the source of all that. I don't want God bossing me around. That's our paradox of sin. And the essence of the Old Testament story and the essence of the Jesus story ends up being let God come near to you. Let God come close to you. Acts 2, verse 38. Jesus ended, you know, saying, I am sending my spirit to be with you. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, makes this proclamation. The spirit has fallen on him and the other apostles with obvious, dramatic demonstrations. But he says, that's not just us. This is God returning to have intimacy with his people. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is God's glory, not taking up a specially prepared tent out in the desert or a beautified building on the mountain in Jerusalem. God's glory wants to come to you. Wants to be in you. That's what that means. You will receive the gift of God's Spirit. In you. In me. You should have seen what I did last night. I don't think the Holy Spirit wants to be in me. You should should have heard the way I talked to my kids just this morning. I don't think the Holy Spirit wants to be in me. Man. Man. When we built the tabernacle, we had to, like, kill a bunch of animals and smear blood everywhere to make it even halfway clean enough for God's Spirit to inhabit. How could God's Spirit ever want to be in me? How is that possible? What's the answer? The sacrifice far beyond bulls and goats, the blood far more precious... Than any blood in this creation has been offered to make you, yes, you, Jim Baird, you, you messed up, nasty piece of work, has been offered to make you suitable to hold the presence of God. If that doesn't give you chills, you have not been listening. <laughs> that, is, that is what grace is about, folks. That is what our gospel, our story of good news is about. Is, is God coming to live? Yeah, we know Jesus was God. Jesus was God. God wants to be near you. He wants to live in you, in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 do you not know, Paul says. He's just making a random you know, doctrinal point about sexual morality. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Earlier in chapter 3, he said, don't you know that you, church, your congregation, you're also the temple of God, the Holy Spirit? God has taken up residence in his temple again and it is not in the form that the jews expected it's not that physical building anymore it's not a place that people can fight over and kill each other over it's each of us that have been purified by the blood of jesus christ every place there is a human being god wants that human being to be a temple of him. Every place. And the blood of Jesus Christ makes that possible. When Jesus says, you go and you make disciples all over the world. What he's saying is, you make temples to God all over the world. Every place that you can get someone to accept the cleansing of Jesus Christ. Every place. You can make a new instance of God's dwelling on earth, God's presence. How does it all end? You all know the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, verse 3, the final prize. What makes heaven heaven? It's got gold streets, you know, but if we wanted to, I'm pretty sure Disney could make gold-looking streets if they really wanted to. That's not what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven? Revelation 21.3. The prize finally is completely fulfilled. See, the dwelling of God is among mortals, and God himself will be with them. Wipe away every tear, heal every disease, cure every ill. God with us. So here's the definition of grace I want to give you for this class. Grace is not about how much you do. I think we do a lot with grace. I I think we do a lot in Christianity. But grace is not about how much you do. It is about how close you get to God, how close you are to God. In your life, there are problems with sin, there are problems with relationships, there are problems with suffering, problems with disease, and the answer, or at least the start of the answer to every one of those problems is, can you find a way in this moment to move closer to God? Or to allow God to move closer to you. God has come running for us. He has come seeking us. Romans 8.1-17 spells this out in a different way. Talks about what the Christian life is like. And it's all about that presence of God. That Holy Spirit that is in us. Christ dies so that the righteousness requirement of the law may be met in us. In other words, God actually still wants all the righteousness he ever wanted out of you. God did not get out of the righteousness business when Jesus came. He's always wanted human beings to do righteousness. Not that it helps God out. God's doing fine. It helps us, (laughs) It makes us who we were meant to be, to be righteous. And so he's always wanted us to be righteous and he still wants us to be righteous, and Jesus came to clear out the gunk and break the chains of sin so that we can actually begin to be righteous more and more. As we get intimate with the Spirit of God, walk by the Spirit. Don't let the flesh drag you around, tell you what to do. Walk by the Spirit. That whole passage in Romans, some of you have it in your study sheets, I think, or in your in your booklets, as we get intimate with the Spirit of God, we are set free to do this work of God. If you are struggling with understanding what God wants from you, ask this question. The next steps I take, how can I do it in a way that makes me closer to God? that invites more God into my life. If you are struggling with how to deal with a difficult relationship, and some relationships you just can't completely fix, but, but you can make them better by asking this question, what can I do in this moment that will bring more God into this relationship? If you're struggling with illness, as we have all been struggling with various stages of illness, You can't fix everything, but you can ask this question. What can I do to bring more God into my life as I face what's happening to me or to those I love? Right now, what can I do? God wants to be in you. He wants to be with you. A long time ago, I heard a story told by Zig Ziglar who used to do sales uh, pep talks basically. And And he had these two stock characters. He told a bunch of stories about them, Asa and Tilly. Old married couple, drove an old Model A for years. And one day they'd been married for a long time. And Tilly looked over at Asa and said, Asa, you remember? we first got this car and we'd drive and we'd be so close to each other you couldn't even turn that wheel without kind of jostling me and now here we are all the way apart and Asa just kind of gripped the wheel a little tighter and said well Tilly I ain't never moved I know I know. Uh, the thing is, folks, God is in love with you. And if you're a baptized Christian, he has already put his spirit in you. And he is working to get you to live up to the privilege of being God's temple on earth. And day in and day out, the struggle of the Christian life, one way to understand it is, is today a day that I'm going to move away from that reality? Or is today a day that I'm going to move closer to that reality? Grace is not about how hard you work. It's about how near you get to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your amazing grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the power that the blood of Jesus Christ has to cleanse us and make us ready to receive your presence in the Holy Spirit. And God, Tonight and tomorrow and next week, we pray, Lord, you will give us more power to be your temple wherever we are, to be your temple individually, with our bodies, with our lives, to be your temple corporately in this congregation and every other congregation of your people, to be where you live, to live and bless this world through us. These things we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you guys very much. Thank you, Dr. Baird. Appreciate it very much. We're going to take about a 30-minute break.